Hello, and welcome to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, designed for culture. Today, I am joined by Patrick Snee. Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jonathan. It's great to be here. So to get started, for those who don't know you like I know you, could you tell our listeners who you are and what you do? So I'm Patrick, and I am a creative technologist. I work with digital media in the context of exhibitions specifically. I probably do about 80% of my work in the museum realm and the other 20% in branded environments, visitor centers, and the like. I do some design work. I do some technology work. And when I'm really lucky, I get to do a project where I get to do them all together. I'm a former business owner, and now I'm an independent consultant. Got it. And so my favorite side question I like to ask everybody, how did you get into this business? Nobody comes in the same route. How about you? I think like many of your guests that I've heard so far, uh, there's a lot of happenstance. I wanted to be a filmmaker. I was in college and I'm doing film production and studies. And then in my 20s, I I made short films and sent them uh, out to festivals, which was great. And then I shot a feature length film, which was not great. And so I had this moment of crisis where I, I had to figure out what to do with my life. And I had, at the time, I had a day job in publishing. And the only interesting thing, working for a tiny company, the only part of the job that I really enjoyed was working with layout software. At that point, it was PageMaker, I believe, before InDesign existed. And so I spent some time and taught myself graphic design software, taught myself Photoshop and Illustrator. And the thing I disliked about print was color matching, the discrepancy between what's on your screen and what actually gets printed. I thought, how can I do graphic design without having to deal with color matching ever? And fortunately, this was the time when the the internet was really taking off. So I was able to chart a, a path that really took me through digital design of first websites. And then I taught myself some multimedia authoring. And then that's where happenstance kicks in. So a colleague of mine, Judith Sisman, who's now at Blue Telescope, was working at a small multimedia firm. And she they had a project. It was a kiosk that was going out onto on the car show circuit. And it was failing out in the field. And they couldn't replicate the problem in-house. I didn't know what I was doing. But they just needed someone to come in and break it. And I was able to do that despite not knowing what I was doing. So my first project in this field was was replicating failure. In about two years, that client became my business partner. And just by happenstance, I was part of a small business. And that was the business that became, a few years later, became Blue Telescope. So that was where I worked with Trent Oliver. And when I discovered this line of work, it was one of those things. We're all really lucky to be in this field because it's the field of everything. You get to work with design, you get to work with technology, you get to work with the kinds of visitor experiences that were so influential for me, at least growing up, going to, going to museums, going to theme parks. I had a perverse interest in world's fairs, which all sort of ties in nicely. And it's also a field where there's new content every, every few months or every few years. So there's always something new and, and I'm just really feel fortunate that I somehow randomly ended up here. I, I love the idea that you got started by by attempting to break something. 
And I think in the next Oops. time you're on the show, I'm yeah. going to ask you about your perverse interest in world's fairs. For now, though, we've got a lot of stuff to discuss yeah. and to get out there. And you are going to be giving away some secrets today. So I want to get right into yes. that. Let's do exactly that. Here we go. Today's episode is Five Secrets of Digital Experience Design with Patrick Snee. Here we go with our very first point. Number one, think in three dimensions. You have to tell me more about what that means. I'm imagining that's a caution for digital folks who need to think in three dimensions, or is it vice versa? It's. I think it's a little bit of both. And it really stems from the idea that when, when we're designing media within an exhibition, we have a tremendous amount of context around that media. If I'm designing a website or if I'm designing a mobile app, I don't know how it's, I don't know where it's going to be used. I don't know what kind of display it will be on. Will it be on a laptop or a mobile device or an iPad? Will somebody be on the subway? Will they be at home? Will they be at work? When we're designing media for exhibitions, we know a lot about that context. We know what it looks like. We might know what it sounds like, what the lighting is like, how crowded it is, maybe. So for me, the first step of design is really thinking of that. It may be a flat screen, but it doesn't exist in a void. It's a flat screen that is actually a 3D object existing in a three-dimensional space, right? So there's a question of context. How does what's on that display how does it reflect? Does it complement? Does it contrast with what's around it? How does it become a part of the whole of the exhibit as opposed to being something that's designed in isolation without then awareness of what's around it? The second factor is scale. How much presence does this media have within the space as a three-dimensional object, really? And how does that scale, that presence, how does that suggest to visitors how it could be experienced, how it could be used? Is this a large experience for a small group, for a family to encounter together? Is it something smaller for somebody to maybe read up on the details of an object that's right next to this display? So scale is the second step. And the third, and probably most interesting to me, is this question of form. I know you were at the SCDD 50th anniversary meeting this past year. And on the last day, we were lucky to see Wendy Joseph speak. She had been granted the, I don't know what the word is called to these things. Fellow. Uh, she, the, she was a uh, term. Right. Okay. Fellow. Wendy right. is now a fellow. Essentially, Wendy is a fellow. Yes. Yeah. But she gave a brief presentation. And one of her points, which really struck me, was form is a greeting. And it was really interesting to me because it encapsulated and articulated what. I haven't been unable to articulate about why design matters in an exhibition context and why shape and scale and size all matter. And these are things that are not necessarily related to content, but they have a tremendous impact on that visitor experience. So thinking of form as a greeting was a really nice gateway for me to really be able to think more deeply about these things. So what does that digital experience within an exhibition gallery, what does it say to the visitor based on its form? Is it a tabletop? Is it mounted to a wall? Is it a projection on the floor or is it something that's on the ceiling? Is it something that breaks out of the rectangular frame and is a projection onto an organic material, for example? Um, so part of this is a 
part of this is the question of novelty. Part of it is getting visitors to notice something, to pay attention to it, to recognize that it's not just another screen like the one they're carrying with them. Part of it is making it really experiential as opposed to another website, really. But there's a functional element to it as well. If I've somehow done a lot of work with touch tables, right? And when we first worked with them, we thought it was a fad. And then they went away and then they came back and then they pretty much stayed because that form factor, it says a lot and it supports specific types of interaction, right? When you're interacting with a touch table in a gallery, you're looking at other human beings face to face. So this suggests a social interaction. It suggests a group experience. It suggests something where you and your family, or perhaps even complete strangers, can collaborate on something, can play a game together, can explore something together. So that's, I think, the perfect example of how the form of the media, the shape of it, how it fits into the 3D space really has an, uh, an impact on how people perceive it and how they sort of open their minds to what the possibilities of that interaction could be. I, I often say, if we do our site-specific media, interactive media, linear media, whatever it is, digital experience, this in, if we think in three dimensions, your point here is think in three dimensions. If we think in three dimensions right, the result should be that the media we produce, if put by itself on YouTube, should be bad. So, I, in other words, it'll have things in it. The media will say, yep. look at the Tyrannosaurus skeleton directly above, or it'll be in a very strange format. It'll be round, or it'll be very wide, or very tall, and you won't be able to see it on YouTube. You have to make it as bad on YouTube as possible. Is that a wise thing that I'm telling people to do? Oh, I think it's great. It's Obviously, it's not always practical. We often are working with existing media or media that was produced for another context, like a documentary context. Honestly, even just breaking the aspect ratio, even going vertical, that's maybe not that uncommon now with phones, but, but going to a square, going to another shape, going to two displays with a few feet between them that are somehow connected to each other. It's really just breaking people out of the device-based interaction mode. And I'm all for it. I think, by, yeah, by the way, I think you're totally right. The, the touch table thing, I've written about that too. There was a time when we thought that jumped the shark, didn't it? And then Microsoft was trying to sell everyone like in the play, oh, yeah. is Pac-Man in the bar with a beer on top of the game kind of console for your home use and that didn't work, et cetera. And for some reason, we have this sort of trend that will, it never becomes yeah. famous. It never dies. It's just. Now, the flip side of that is that you can do it really poorly and you could put media on a table that really shouldn't be on a table because the table is not necessarily great for reading. That's true. But when you have the right application and when it, when it supports the content, when it supports the mode of interaction, yeah, it can be fantastic. You're, and you're, I completely agree. I'm doing it right now. And you made another point about aspect ratio and I had to make note of that. There's an, another thing. Everything you're saying is something that I completely agree with. And uh, I would tell it to my okay, clients. And and I don't, your last point, I'm offended well, by it. No, I'm not offended okay. by anything. Darn it. Darn it. I don't have anything to debate yet. We'll come up with something. But the other, there's an old trick. I think someone taught it to me once and, not, and I, then I've been paraphrasing it ever since. When in doubt, project onto something. 
I think you just uh, project onto some organic material. It's like a, it's the funniest thing. Even if you know the gag, even if you know the trick, it'll work on you every time. It's, here's a sheep I projected on it. Genius. <laughs> it's crazy how that works, but that's another, yeah. like another idea that will never die. And when you project onto an object, people will take pictures of it. That's right. Absolutely. They will take pictures of the screen. But that same content projected onto any three-dimensional object, and it's Instagram. It's true, and it's always fresh because the content is always different and the object is always different. Okay. Ah, love it. Okay, point number two, your point number two. I need you to point number two. Yes. I need you to decode uh, this one for me because it is very smart, and I'm not sure I'm smart enough. Number two, assume diverse digital literacies. What does it mean to assume diverse digital literacies? I'm guessing that the way I read it, it would be something along the lines of not every user is equally comfortable with digital stuff or find it novel, but I'm sure there's more to it than that. What's your take on assume diverse digital literacies? Yeah, visitors bring very different technological backgrounds with them. You've got the grandparents, you've got the grandchildren, you've got the very savvy digital natives. The anecdote I like to use is that I, while I work with technology, sometimes there are some factors of it in which I'm a Luddite. And so I tend to not throw things out. So two years ago, I got a, a new phone. I switched from an Apple iPhone, I think six, maybe six S to a Google Pixel. Excuse me. It's hard to say. And the biggest adjustment for me was that the phone has no physical home button. So it took a little while. It probably took me about two weeks to get comfortable with it. But the fact that if I wanted to get out of an app, I had to swipe upward. Let's swipe from the right point of the screen, swipe from the bottom edge of the screen. Not If I swiped from the wrong point of the screen, I would do something within the app that I was in. So all of this, there was a learning curve to all of this, right? And now it's great and it's a great phone and I highly endorse it. But if we're Putting something into an exhibition, we don't have time for a learning curve, right? We have a few seconds before a visitor is frustrated or irritated or thinks that the media is broken. So what I like to think is if your digital interactive needs instructions, it's probably too late. So the flip side of this is that there is so much information out there on the internet about best practices for designing digital interactions. And this usually falls within the UX category of user experience design. We know that an arrow pointing to the right means that we're going to advance to the next screen or to more content. We know that a little button with a home symbol on it will take us back to where we started. More recently, we've learned that the hamburger menu, the three horizontal lines, will bring up some options for us. Maybe it's a gear. But these are all things that we think of as intuitive, but they were learned over the last few decades. I remember I was at a conference probably about 12 years ago, talking to a colleague about, speaking of touch tables, talking about how people didn't know how to use touch tables. And there was this sort of vernacular language for what we now do on our phones. We pinch and we zoom. We pinch to zoom images. We stretch them, we squeeze them, but we can rotate them. But in 2008, 2009, nobody knew how to do that because most people's experience with touchscreens 
were ATMs. So we found ourselves, we didn't have to have that discussion for much longer because iPhones came out and tablets came out and Android phones came out. And suddenly everyone pretty much with a smartphone has in the, has learned how to interact with multi-touch. So these things are constantly evolving, but there are expectations that you can follow. So last year I redid my website and I decided to do a carousel style navigation. And that is when you have a sequence of images and you can, they slide left and right, like they're on a slide carousel. So I looked up what are the best practices for doing this? And I found some sites and they all said, don't do it. But if you're going to do it, here are some things you should do. And they are, they're all things that make perfect sense, but they make perfect sense because we've seen them and they've been tested. If you're, if there's an image that's next in the sequence, show a little bit of that image at the corner of the screen and show the previous image. So people understand that they're seeing part of this carousel, give them a number or dot to show them where they are within this, give them a sense of orientation within it, and then give them arrow buttons. So by providing these sort of multiple levels, you can have the arrow, you can have the arrow that has the word next under it. You can have the swiping, you can have all three of those things. And if you're designing for people with different experiences, there are ways to implement those things seamlessly so that you're not, you're not dumbing down the interface just to make that accommodation. It's like with universal design, good universal design for accessibility is great for everyone who uses it. So the same thing applies to designing digital interfaces. In the design that you do, you're considering the diverse digital literacies by providing, sim it sounds like simultaneously, multiple ways to interact with it. Yep. You brought up the example of your own website with its carousel. Right. And there's a carousel and you can click on the little piece of the next image and it'll uh, slide into place. Or there's an arrow there and you can click that and that'll slide into place. And I guess if it were a museum exhibit, you could hold your hand up near it and it, that would make the thing slide. And other multiple, whichever way you think you ought to interact with it, your approach would be to say, yes, that is one of the ways yes. you can work with it because we want everyone to be able to work with it. Did I get that? Did Absolutely. I hear that correctly? There are so many audiences and providing the that access to each of those audiences does not there's a way of doing it without contradicting or without excluding any of those visitors so your rule would be backing up to the beginning of this point not only so let's see if i got it right the interactive media and the digital media we have in museums if there's any instruction needed it's too late that's one the other is you have to accommodate every digital literacy at the same time, and it has to be accessible to everyone with different abilities. Like no pressure, but it has no to do all of that at the same time. And in your world, that's standard. All right, point number three here, we are still sharing five secrets of digital experience design here. Point number three is identify the strong verb. Identify the open parentheses, strong, close parentheses, verb, and that's a very specific punctuation. Unpack that for me. What the heck does that mean? Identify the parenthesis yep. strong verb. Sure. So interaction is doing something. It's an act. It, active is right there in the word. So when we're providing opportunities for interaction in an exhibition, 
but we're asking visitors to participate in an activity. And what, so it's really looking at that question of what is that activity and what is that verb? And I like to think of it as there are strong verbs and there are weak verbs, right? So a weak verb in this context would be navigating or reading, right? These are very basic things. Obviously, these are things that are happening in exhibitions. They're mechanisms for pushing content. So there are means to an end, but the interaction that goes into navigating through content, reading screens of content, it's not necessarily a valuable interaction. It's a purely functional interaction. And there's a question of if you're providing just screens of content, is that better done on the visitor's phones versus a dedicated piece of media inside of a gallery? That's a complicated question that has many answers based on context. But the weak verbs for engaging interaction, I think, are navigating and reading. Then we have the verbs that are pretty decent. So these are the okay verbs. And these are things like discovering, observing, comparing, and testing. So these are instances where a digital interactive might inspire you to look more closely at something. For example, a, rep a, a replica of a piece of art with hotspots on it that you can click to get more information about something. So you're still, it's still a question of pushing information to that visitor, right? I can't, as that museum visitor, I can't impact what's happening. I can choose my path toward it, but it's still a push of information. And I think that also would apply, for example, to a, a quiz game in an exhibition. It's a little bit more engaging in terms of the format, but my participation in it doesn't really have any impact on what's happening. So I get to the strong verbs, and these are things like creating, playing, reacting, simulating, collecting, experimenting. And ideally, these are experiences where that interaction somehow replicates or ties into what the content of the exhibition is. I'm going to borrow an example from your last podcast with Liza Rawson from Liberty Science Center. And I know she spoke about the the virtual microbial art lab. Right, um, agar art. Yeah, is, everyone's talking about agar yes, art now. Yeah, agar art, the hottest thing. Which I And I was very fortunate to work on that project. But the, Okay. Yeah, they, so I know that they consider actually putting an, a microbial art lab in the exhibit, but there are many factors that made that a bad idea, partly because it, it takes a lot of time to make microbial art. So if a visitor is using that interactive, they're able to engage, they're able to use the content in a virtual way. They're working with these microbes as raw materials. So they're getting to the, they're finding some familiarity with those microbes on that level, but they're also replicating a lab process. So they're learning about what the quote unquote real scientists do when they're making microbial art in a lab. You have a virtual tool and you have to sterilize it before you dip it into the other Petri dish or you will cross-contaminate your microbes. So it gets very technical, but that's sort of a really good example of something that is an experience. It's not informational, right? It's not, I didn't learn a, a paragraph of content from doing that, but I got hands-on, I engaged with that content. I built something and along the way, I familiarized myself with some of the actual real world process. It's not always easy to, there's not always an opportunity for this level of interactive. 
But when there is any kind of sort of simulation, any opportunity to play with or test or experiment with content can be can be really valuable. The the second half of that is interactives that allow visitors to work with, for example, in an art museum, the very common kind of interactive that would let a visitor choose their own collection, look at what's in the gallery, pick pick three artworks that you like and put them in juxtaposition and make your own gallery, right? So it's not an informational transfer at that point, right? You're at the point where you're asking the visitor to consider those artworks and actually personalize their own relationship with them synthesize what they mean when they're put together in context. And that's in some ways, you've built a connection between that visitor and that artwork that is not about them learning more about the artist who created it. It's about them gaining an understanding of how that art impacts them and how that could impact other people around them. So those are the strong verbs, making things, experimenting with things, collecting things, simulating things. As you go from your, I, I love this idea, I've never thought about it that way, as you go from your weak verbs to your okay verbs to your strong ones, sounds like the weak ones, as you described it, navigating and reading, that's what you would do with, I don't know, I guess an encyclopedia or a digital world, or Wikipedia. You just click around and click a link and read another thing, you click a link, you read another thing, and then you found out what you need and you give up. That next level of discovering, observing, comparing hotspots of something, here's a vase, touch a hotspot to learn why it, it's polychrome in that area or something. And that's a that's still educational. That's still pedagogical in a way. But this next level of strong verb, that's just experiential. That's We're not trying to just transact information with you on demand. We're not trying to educate you about something. We're actually trying to make you have a good experience, which is probably why people came to the venue to begin with. It's a, more of a natural extension. Right. Yeah, and I don't want to I don't want to dismiss the weak verbs because there's a need for them. We often need that kind of digital interpretation in a gallery when they if depending on context, if we need more information that the labels can provide, or if we want to avoid labels completely and just provide that access for those who really want to learn more. But from an experiential standpoint, exactly it's a purely functional interaction. So it's not it's not necessarily building on the opportunities for engagement. Now that middle level, your okay verbs, I think there's a lot better of, than okay. Right there, brother mid level. I don't know what to call them, but I, I get the point. I think it's valuable to think about it this way. I've never thought about it that way. Thinking about what the I don't know, a taxonomy of verbs or a taxonomy of actions. And a lot of museum digital media is that's interactive. A lot of museum interactive digital media or places that are like museums visitor centers, corporate lobbies, historic sites of conscience, whatever it might be, are in that category. They're in that middle category of discovering, observing, comparing, and testing. Here's uh, hot spots that tell you how the Star-Spangled Banner got its damage. Here's a, a big table that you can uh, navigate in order to hear every kind of uh, bird song. Here's a big wall where you can see all of the objects that are that are in our entire collection here at the archives, whatever that is, but it's it's discovering, it's observing, it's comparing. It's just done in a very sort of jaw-dropping way and out of the art to use your word from before novel. And I think there's a lot of work in our field that's done in this middle category, partly because I think 
It falls easily to hand. It's somewhere in between. It's a kind of a Goldilocks thing. So much so that I've referred to it for years, I don't know why, as sexy browsing. It's, uh, yeah, I could, that could be in the book, that could be in the catalog, but somehow on, these, on this gigantic wall that I can touch, take a picture of myself, it's like sexy browsing. I don't know why I call it that, but do you think that am I, that's a completely unresearched and I don't know what I'm talking about <laughs> thing, but is that true? Is a lot of stuff done in that middle ground in our industry and, and one goal might be one of the secrets you're sharing is see if you can get into the third category. See if you can make it a stronger verb because then it's just going to be better. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's also a question of if you are deploying digital media, do it in the most effective way. Um, I think with all those verbs, I think of them sometimes also in terms of what could it, what could docent help you with in that gallery? The docent can ask the kind of provocative questions to inspire you to look more deeply to think about the content and the art. So I think a lot of that middle category is, in addition to providing access to more information, a lot of it is ideally working in that context that is, works really well person to person, but is not always feasible to, to have that kind of stuff in a gallery at all times. So that kind of close looking, that visual learning stuff is really does lend itself to that level of interaction. And I've certainly learned from plenty of those types of exhibits in my time. Let me do a halftime show, quick station identification. If you're just joining, you're listening to Making the Museum. I'm Jonathan Alger, and this is a project of C&G Partners, designed for culture. If you find this show valuable, please help spread the word. You can rate the show in Apple Podcasts or Spotify. You can write a review in Apple Podcasts specifically, or you can just tell a friend to check out makingthemuseum.com, where it all starts for everything about this podcast and the newsletter. And I want to thank everybody who has gone and rated the show and given it a five-star rating, which is what this show has. That's amazing. Thank you so much for doing that. Feel free to go over with your five stars anytime. Now back to the show. Today we are talking with Patrick Snee about five secrets of digital experience design. That last one was really a total secret to me. I'm still thinking about it. Let's see what these next two come up with. We've got five of them. We've done three. That must mean the next one is number four. And number four is distill the personality. I love your points. They're like the points themselves are like art. Distill the personality. What the heck does that mean? Okay, I asked the same thing about the last one. Now I'm going to be totally sure mind boggled by this and have to write this down in, in great detail. What does distill the personality mean? So we were just so we were just talking about verbs and activity. And I think this one is really about the adverbs. We're doing something. How are we doing it? This for me is about the voice of the exhibit, right? So we think of the exhibit as having a voice as reflected in the writing of labels, in the curation. Is it authoritative? Is it friendly? Is it a peer or a parent who's speaking to you? Does it have a sense of humor or is it very serious? And that voice will often extend into the visual design of the exhibition, into every detail of how that exhibition works. When we're dealing with digital media, whether it's interactive or not, we have another factor, and that factor is the factor of motion and behavior, right? So here's an example. I have this brilliant digital interactive and in the corner of the screen, there's a red dot and there's a button 
And when I press that button, that red dot moves to the other corner of the screen, moves across the screen. How does it do that? You could hit the, you could hit the button and it could just jump instantaneously. It could cross dissolve from one position to the other. It could move elegantly across the screen. It could move in a zigzag. It could move smoothly. It could move abruptly. The screen could fill with more red dots and they all disappear leaving the one. Expressing a personality through these little details. And so it's really, like I said, it's the adverb that goes with the verb. How is it teaching you this? How is it? How are you exploring? How are you experimenting? The idea of a micro interaction is that's a little detail that helps that visitor by communicating in some way. So for example, if I'm using an interactive and there's something that appears to be a button and I tap that button, something happens. Maybe it changes color just for a second. Maybe it dims out. Maybe it gets smaller and then bigger again. But that is feedback that's important for a few reasons. Number one, I know that it's not broken. And number two, I know that my interaction has been acknowledged, right? So think about when something is loading on your in your browser or on your screen. You've got maybe you have three little dots, like you would have in a text message, showing you that there's some activity happening. It doesn't have to be dots, it could be the notorious spinning wheel of of the Apple ecosystem. It could be a more complicated animation. But it's those types of details that on some levels seem really superficial, but on other levels give us hints about how to operate and how to communicate with this anthropomorphic thing that has a personality. The third example I would say is a hint to what you're supposed to do. So imagine you you start an experience, you're confused, you don't know what you're supposed to do. There's a lot going on on the screen. So imagine 10 seconds later, something lights up to draw your attention. So it can, it gives you feedback. It helps you know that your feedback is being interpreted and it gives you hints in terms of what you're supposed to do. You can think of this as, I know you recently wrote about attract loops and I've written about attract loops, but one of the things that I, for years, it, I never did it when there's a, when there's a screen in the gallery and nobody's using it and you see that silhouette of a hand move up onto the screen and appear to tap something. These are the things that that give us those clues. They help those who are not necessarily as familiar with technology to know that, yes, this is something that can be interacted with. And I think it, it really all boils down to attention to detail and a level of sort of craftsmanship that if you're designing in Photoshop or Illustrator, if you're designing something that's flat and is not in motion, these are the things that bring that into the next level where they feel like an intentional designed experience, where they feel polished, where they feel like everything's an experience, but maybe it helps to it, it helps things to feel like a quote unquote experience, if you know what I mean by that. Yeah, for sure. We, that thing you're referring to about the, what an attract mode is, I, I, I wrote a thing about sneaky attract modes. Often the interactives are six-figure, even seven-figure things that are by far the single densest use of budget that we have in our space. And because of that, and because of what you've said about diverse digital literacies, 
and the fact that only a certain number of people can use them at once, it's always true that when our exhibits are very popular, that cram, like jam with people. I was at National Air and Space recently. And it's just packed in there. And the question is, how much time do people have to see the interactive that are often the most valuable thing that we make or the most expensive piece of the budget? Anyway, long story short, I often counsel clients to make sure to build in a sneaky attract mode. That means that in the attract mode itself and in the essence of the thing itself, there's a grand takeaway. There's something you're supposed to take away from it. You can take away without interacting, even if no one's interacting, and even if someone is interacting and it ain't you, that there's this sort of way that the thing communicates something almost precognitively. That was the thing I think you're talking about that I wrote about, which is sneaky attract mode. But I, I have a question about a couple of how your couple of your points go together. You talked about earlier that an interactive again in my category like no pressure uh, an interactive should work without instructions so given that you have diverse digital literacies given that you want to have the strong verb etc dumb question but how do you do that how do you make an interactive every interactive time and time again need no instructions and that anyone can walk up to it and start doing it like what <laughs> it's probably a fairly long answer but or the answer might be, it depends. But how do you do that? I walk and in when, and I'm well, eight and I'm with my mom and she's 40 and I'm with my grandmother and she's 65. And how does everyone start doing this thing together and need no instructions? How do you do that? In some cases, it means the experience is not going to be as complicated as maybe your team had hoped at the beginning. Maybe I will say, and I'm going back to the same example, but that at virtual microbial art lab. So that opened, <laughs> excuse me, that opened in, I think, December. And we had tested it a bit in house. The exhibit wasn't ready. So there was, we didn't have the opportunity to put it out on the floor for like a soft opening. But we had tested it and, <laughs> excuse me, I built in a system for helping you use it. And there were a lot of things you could do wrong. In that instance, because it was we were trying to mirror the real world process. Like I mentioned earlier, you could cross contaminate the tool you were using, and you would have a. If you did that, you'd get a sort of a red alert message. If you did that, so none of that was working when we actually put it out in front of real museum visitors. It was not working. It was not working. People okay. just overwhelmed and confused. Okay. So what we ended up doing, and this actually goes, it this converges really nicely with distill the personality. We ended up reworking a lot of that and creating an onboarding, basically a sort of step-by-step instructional level. So rather than read a list of instructions and then go, you have one prompt at a time. So it's choose a tool. Now choose a microbe. Now draw on the canvas. Now sterilize the tool and choose another microbe. And that ultimately it was observational, but the visitors were able to work with that a lot more easily than with the original plan. So I I would consider that kind of onboarding, which if you download a new mobile app, there might be like an onboarding sequence that before you even use it, it might provide you with that orientation. And I would consider that to be a micro interaction as well. So the, the um, onboarding thing is like, we used to use this example all the time in the museum world, 
Still can. Uh, if you download a casual game, like in the early days of that, Angry Birds, the first right. rounds would be essentially enjoyable. You didn't realize it, but it was enjoyably teaching you how to do the thing with very low stakes. And exactly. that's kind of, you get a new financial management app, uh, downloads, uh, saving for teen, kind of runs you through the different parts of it in an enjoyable way. And then those those little helper bubbles go away as you start. That's what you're talking. When you say onboarding, pretty much. Yeah, it's not like HR. It's a it's a yeah, it's a no. way that we do software. Um, so the first steps of it, we're actually on, over your shoulder at your side, doing it with you a little bit until you can exactly. do it by yourself. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the challenge is how much time can you devote to onboarding. But if you can lead somebody through the process, as opposed to giving them the list of instructions and then saying go. That I think is how you get around the the complexity of helping a, a diverse group of people to get through a complex digital experience. And you were just to be clear, you were saying here that you want to distill the personality, but the personality here, I th I thought the opposite. The personality here is the personality of the experience, not the personality of the person. You're not talking about. Yes. You're not talking about. Although I'm sure you do work with personas or trying to say that, okay, if the person using the experience is an eight-year-old sports enthusiast, this is how the experience is good for them. And if it's their grandmother, this is how the experience is good for them. And if they do not speak English as a first language, this is how the experience is, that is good for them. So it's personas. That's a different thing. You're talking about the actual the machine yep. itself having a personality. Right. What's the style with which it does these things? Yeah, and, and we see this with our digital assistants. We see it with Siri and Alexa and all of those uh, creatures that literally are impersonating human beings. And we see it with AI impersonating human beings. But how does that in-gallery digital interactive, as you're interacting with it, the way that you interact with a human being, how is it treating you? How is it talking to you? What impression is it making about you? That kind of personality. Got it. Okay, great. Point number five. We got five points here, five secrets. You've already given away a bunch of secrets. I'm still thinking about uh, number five, prototype early and often. Prototype early and often. You are not the first person on the show to say that, but I don't think you can say that enough times. Prototype early and often. Tell us in your own words why you think that's important and maybe some examples of that. Sure. Both early and often are an important part of this. Basically, we're used to bringing in digital technology toward the end of an exhibit development process. We've, in my experience, and it's changing, but in my experience, we still develop things in a waterfall methodology. I know you've covered that on a, on a separate podcast, but waterfall basically meaning there's phase one of the project, phase one is complete, it's locked off. Phase two begins. So phase one might be your interpretive planning. Phase two might be your design. Number phase three might be fabrication, etc. So I've been on products where digital media development was actually part of the fabrication contract, and I started on a project after it had been designed, after this design had been locked off, after all the content had been developed, except for the content we needed, and I had no contact with the interpretive planners or the actual um, graphic or 3D designers of the, of the exhibition. So at that point, we do what we can 
Some of it makes sense, some of it doesn't make sense, but we're contracted based on decisions that were made at an earlier point in the process. So my argument here is really that bringing in technology development earlier into the process can create both a better user experience in the final product, but also a better process for everyone who's working on that project. So the reasons to prototype digital, number one is user experience. And this is, this is comparable to what you would, if you were designing for a children's museum or a science center and you were building prototypes, of physical interactives, you want something that's testable. That's that where you can see is the scale appropriate. Is it accessible physically? Do you people understand it? Is it going to break those sorts of things? And there's great value in doing that with digital interactives. If you can do it early in the process and see where the missteps might happen, see what's not, what doesn't make sense, what's non-intuitive, what's too big, what's too small, all of that sort of thing. The second reason to prototype is proof of concept. And I'm going to use, I'm going to reference Liza Rawson again. So a few years back with Blue Telescope, I worked on the Beyond Rubik's Cube traveling exhibition. And one of our projects was was called Tessellation Table, and it was a digital tabletop, and it was about tessellations. And the brief basically was, people can use the tabletop, they can drag shapes together and create tessellations, and the tessellations will magically appear. So within probably the first month of the project, we built a prototype, web-based, and we showed it to them. And when we presented it to them, their response was, hmm. That's not really what we were thinking. And so we we took that and we asked some more questions. And it turns out that maybe not everyone on their team had the same understanding of what they thought this would be. Fortunately, it was still early in the process. So we shifted gears. We took that feedback and built something that was more in line, but it gave us a shared understanding of what the product would be. It gave us something to talk about and assess and discuss and critique. Had we not had that kind of process, how do we gone through designing individual screens of information, locking those off, and then going into software development, we would have really built ourselves into a corner that way. So that sort of proof of concept, does this work? Does it make sense? And are we all talking about the same thing? At a project like that, was really crucial to to the to getting to where we needed to get to. In the spirit of your point here, can I just speak for our yeah. dear listener and say, what is sure. tessellation, by the way? Um, I think I know what it is, but I'm yeah. not hundred percent sure. And maybe that's why some people in the client group that you just described were like, wait a minute, that's not what we meant. What is that? Tessellation is tiling, basically. Tessellation is the Tessellation is the mathematics behind the way that patterns can repeat. Like you it, when of, you're making floor tiles or wallpaper exactly, or yeah. a grid or something like that. Okay. Tessellating. Okay. Yeah. So like a hexagon can tessellate, a square can tessellate, a circle can't tessellate. And certain, there's actually a list of something like 28, 28 mechanisms by which certain shapes can tessellate based mm-hmm. on how many sides they have and how they rotate and all this. I don't remember mathematically. It's mathematically profound. Yeah. Although it looks pretty, it's also mathematically profound, yes. like fractals and other things. And Rubik's right. cubes. Then. I, yes. Okay, yeah, got it. Yeah, so that's another strong verb, play with shapes, build, build tiles that tessellate and repeat. But the, so the most interesting, I think, 
reason to prototype though is really for ideation and to develop ideas. I don't enjoy writing, but when I do write, I need to be seated in front of a keyboard in order to generate ideas. When I'm doing design work, I need to either be sketching something or be, I need to be seated in front of design software and we're working with something before ideas emerged. I'm not the kind of person for whom ideas emerge in the middle of the night and then I, and then they magically make sense once they're built out. So when developing digital media, I think for me, it's the same thing. When you're actually working with something that's interactive, you're going to see things differently and you're going to come up with ideas for how things could work in a way that is hard to do when you are in a more abstract planning process or in a too static design process. I did a project recently for one of my clients. They sold one of their clients on a LED wall for a children's museum, and they were having trouble figuring out what to put on it. And <laughs> my, yeah. Hardware first. Dude, get that hardware. Sell me a wall. Yeah. But so I, it was like one of those little dream projects where I spent a few hours and built some prototypes. They asked me to work on it and I put together like four different things. We took one of those four things, developed it further, and we went through about five iterations. And what we ended up with was this very like fully featured piece of software that makes pretty patterns and pretty artwork. We don't have a design yet though, right? I this is maybe a week and a half of work, but but there's no user interface yet because it's still at that development stage. When it comes time to do that user interface, then we will know so much more about what the capabilities are, what's intuitive, what, what feels right. This is also for a children's museum, so we're going to have to pare things down for you know, the six-year-olds. But we're starting from a place of all this capability, let's shrink it down to something that's manageable. If we had started in the other direction, we wouldn't have to develop quite as much because we would have defined so much more earlier in the project before we really even started. But there are no, lots of I think there's, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I think often there isn't time or energy or often money. Uh, I don't know, something gets in the way, but we were talking about this in the pre show. Paul Orselli was on the show some episodes back and dropped a line that I still remember to this day, which is if you think that prototyping, costs a lot. Wait till you see the cost of total failure. And I think that's pretty good. Prototyping is a form of insurance if you want to think about it. I, I did want to ask, based on what you've been saying, I, I have a one of my partners here in our firm has also been on the show. His name is Eileen Takmakov, and he loves the word fidgetal, the idea that the, a lot of the work that we do now, and, and maybe it's been true for a long time, actually, in a philosophical way, it's neither uh, entirely physical nor entirely digital, but somewhere in between, and it will always be that way. And yeah. that that is actually the realm that we're in. We're in a digital realm. We have been for a while, and it will be true forevermore. And as you're talking about the need to think in three dimensions, and as you're naming so fluently many different examples of interactive software that is site-specific, some of the ones you mentioned are very simple and don't depend much upon context, like certain types of touchscreens, whereas there are others that are very specific and depend very much on context. Touch tables are much more 
three-dimensional. There are people around them. You, the, the way the person on the other side of the table interacts is upside down compared to you, etc. Even at that level, it's much more three-dimensional. But is it also true that how you prototype is in proportion to the degree to which context is important? To, like which end of the spectrum digital is on? That's such a poorly stated, I'll, I'll make it more concrete. If it's a simple touch grain that doesn't require anything around it to be based on, you can just test it in your office. Whereas the LED screen you talked about where kids get to choose tiles and everything like that, at some point, you're probably going to have to make the whole screen, put it on site or somewhere a lot like the site and have kids use it. Like the more people are thinking in three dimensions, your point number one the more they have to prototype early and often, which is your point number five. Whereas if you're not thinking about it in, in three dimensions much, maybe you don't have to prototype that early. What I'm trying to do is get a rule for our listeners where they know when to start prototyping and how important it is. And it seems to me that the more novel it is, the more site-specific it is, the more complex it is, the more its proportion is out of the ordinary. That means that you should prototype more early and more often. I would agree with that, but I think the flip side of that is that the less complex it is, the easier it is to prototype, right? So if you have something that is simply screen-based, navigation-based, you can prototype that in PowerPoint. If you have a design team that has Figma or Adobe XD, they can build a working prototype of something. So there's less of an excuse not to prototype. and. Also, since you brought up Paul Urselli and he has so much useful stuff to say about prototyping, one of the things that I know he's a proponent of is paper prototyping, mm -hmm. which right. sounds like you wouldn't be able to use that for digital experiences. But on the contrary, apparently it's quite possible. My colleague, Stacy Mann, who is an interpretive planner and much more, Stacy introduced me to this. We were uh, doing a charrette with a client developing a, a game. And she basically set up a paper prototype for how the game works, where our client was the player of the game and Stacy was the computer. Basically, she would sketch the interface. She would ask the client to make a choice in the game. And depending on what the client said, she would tear that piece of paper away and sketch the next step in the process. I know we've been talking about technology for this whole session, but I just find it fascinating that there's a really interesting way to prototype these types of experiences that uses virtually no technology, although you could argue that a magic marker is a piece of technology, right? And it's, it can be useful for figuring out flow, for figuring out how things work. You don't need, you don't need a, a, an expensive software developer. You don't need an expert level multimedia person to do a lot of this stuff. There are ways, I think, on any project to to bring that prototyping early, even if you don't have the technical capability in-house. Did, did anyone at any point realize that they should just have Stacy in the gallery just doing the performance art instead of any technology? Maybe she was. That, maybe that's not her area of... Uh, it's not her area. I, I, I don't know how she would feel about that, but I'm, I'm guessing it would could be, be a, a new, could be a new opportunity. Down. Anyway, your, your main point is technology. Your technology prototyping can be done without any technology at all. Yeah. Yeah. Which is great. Okay. That's an awesome point. Okay. Quick recap. This is our list for today. We've been talking about the five secrets of digital experience design with Patrick Snee. Number one, think in three dimensions. 
Number two, assume diverse digital literacies. Number three, identify the paren strong, paren verb. Four, distill the personality. And five, prototype early and often. How did we do? That's exactly correct. We got it all. Those are the secrets. Okay. Secrets have been spilled. I think I heard some. I think I heard some notebooks opening. I think I heard some scratching of pens. I think I heard some people opening up their iPhones and opening up their notes app. It's been excellent, Patrick Snead, to have you on this show. Thank you. So, if listeners would like to get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Email, website, LinkedIn. We'll put it all in the show notes. But people are jogging or washing the dishes. Can you spell out a couple of the best ways to get in touch with you? Sure. You can email me at ps at patricksnee.com. That's P-A-T-R-I-C-K-S-N-E-E. Snee.com is also my website, and you can find me on LinkedIn as well. Got it. Awesome. Okay. I think we covered it. Thank you, dear listener, for your time in exchange. I hope this episode gave you some news you can use. If you would like to get in touch with me or you have an idea for the show, go to makingthemuseum.com and hit contact. You can also find me on LinkedIn under Jonathan Alger, A-L-G-E-R, or at the website of my firm, C&G Partners. Hey, by the way, this podcast has an older sister. It's a one-minute newsletter under the same name. Tuesdays, Wednesdays, and Thursdays, one quick insight each time for museum leaders, exhibition teams, and visitor experience pros. You can subscribe also at makingmuseum.com. Dot com big subscribe button in the menu at the top. Meanwhile, I'm Jonathan Alger, and I hope you'll join me next time for Making the Museum. Bye for now.